I entitled today's message, New Wineskins, and we're going to be going, continuing to go through that blended gospel where we're looking at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, today, it's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We're using Luke as a base. We'll have the scriptures on the screens because we are blending them together. But I wanted to begin with a couple thoughts. And, and the first thought is a little bit brutal, but it's pretty honest, I think. And, and most of you, if you were honest, you might kind of be with me on this. And here's, here's the point. What the Pharisees wanted is what we want from a Messiah which is we want him to add on and bless our lives, building our kingdoms, doing our things on our agenda. We we don't really want a Messiah to come in and tell us things like surrender, submit, it's my way, not your way. We don't like being agitated like that. We don't like being told what to do. We don't like him going, you know what, this that you're doing here, this is not what I intended. I need you to overhaul the entire thing. We are not comfortable with change. So we resist that. But yet Jesus, by definition of the Messiah he came to be, was to wreck our world, bring things new, transform. He uses phrases like a brand new heart, not a, hey, I need to do a little bit of work in that corner of your heart. He said, I will take out your heart of stone. I will put in a heart of flesh. He said, behold, all things are becoming new. He says, every morning, my mercies are new. Do you realize that God is still creating unique design? And what I mean by that is even tangibly around us, every time a baby is born, you have a new element of God, a new revelation of how God looks in every child that is created that is completely unique. Their fingerprints are unique. It would talk about uh, snowflakes are unique. Nature is unique. God is consistently revealing variations of who he is. He's still creating. And if he's still creating, that means you will always be face to face with new. Some of us don't like new. We like old. We like how it used to be. We like the comfortable jeans. We don't want the new stiff jeans. We like the comfortable shoes, not the new shoes that are awkward to start walking in. We like how church used to be. We don't like the way church seems to be going. We like the old songs. We don't necessarily like the new songs. We like, you see what I mean? We get so wrapped up in, I'm already in my pattern. I don't want to change anymore that when Jesus breathes life, through new things, we resist them. We don't like them. And even on a grand level, we really get tense with the idea of overhaul of who we are. We tend to get very settled and like who we are, especially those of us that grew up in the church. We feel like we've built on what God told us to do, and now we've arrived, and we feel good about it, we feel solid about it, and we now know how God works. So when anything new slides into our viewpoint, we immediately reject it or vilify it without testing it to see if that is truly what God desires. We are called to be clay, soft clay, in the Father's hands. We are not supposed to have already been fired, now we're ceramic and immovable in the Father's hands. 
You know what I mean? Now, if you have a fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you, maybe you have that. Uh, this is my point. Jesus isn't an add-on to our current life. Jesus isn't an add-on to our current life. He is the new life. He is the constant overhaul. He is the, no, we're doing it like this now. And I know what you, because here's what we do. Even if we've grown up in the church, we think, all right, yeah, it must have been difficult in the first century. I mean, I get it. Judaism always went like this. Animal sacrifices, all that stuff. Jesus rolls into town and says, we're overhauling everything. That had to be unsettling for them. No wonder they rejected him. Ultimately, they killed him over it. They didn't like how he was laying it out, the new thing. And they said, we want no part of it. But the problem is, is we think that's the only time that God has ever overhauled things. What I'm trying to tell you is that personally, he will be overhauling things in you and in me every day. And if we are resistant to that, we will die inside and we will not grow. Jesus is about to bring in all sorts of change and and different things into his environment and watch how he does it It's masterful now. That doesn't mean that they still don't hate him But it's masterful in how he does it. So let's go ahead and begin with god's word Let's throw up the first scriptures on the screen and kind of lay a tone here. It says now after this Jesus passed on from there and went out again beside the sea And all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw a tax collector, a man called Matthew, which means the gift of the Lord. But he was named Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. All right, before we get into this, I need you to understand what a tax collector is. You will never understand the tension of this story until you understand tax collectors backwards and forwards. Now, some of you grew up in church and you already know the tension. Let me bring everyone else up to speed. The Roman Empire had taken over the known world and they needed some way to keep managing it that was cheap, efficient, quick. So they decided they would collect taxes through the locals. It's a pretty brilliant concept. What you do is you get all the local people to say, hey, you can make a little money for yourself. You also can kick back money to the Roman Empire. It's a win-win situation. We're all good. That way, everywhere they own, they were getting money from them. So they created this idea of tax collecting. Well, there was two different kinds of taxes. And this is where we kind of need to learn a little bit of history. So two different kinds of empire taxes and local taxes. So empire taxes are what Rome demands of everybody, and it was published, publicized, and well-known. Now, I understand. I'm not even going to have a show of hands how many people like to pay taxes. You know what I'm saying? There's certain questions you don't need to ask. I get you don't like taxes. By the time we get done with this, you're going to appreciate your tax base in comparison to what was going on in the ancient world, all right? Because here's how it goes. The Roman Empire published out these taxes, so he had one type of tax collector collecting those. There was not a lot of money out of that. You couldn't do much extorting when you already knew what was required. So those three taxes are these. There's property tax. If you owned any property, which the Jews were really focused on, if you owned any property, you gave the government one-tenth of all your grain 
and one-fifth of all your fruit or wine or anything from a vine. So one-tenth and one-fifth. That seems like a, a lot. Well, in addition to that, you had an income tax. Your income tax was 1%. Now, that's something we can all get behind, right? 1% income tax. We go, all right, I can roll with that. But then they had a poll tax, P-O-L-L, a poll tax. This was to be paid by all males 14 to 65 and all females 12 to 65. You know what a poll tax is? It's you're alive. If you are alive, you owe tax. It's the tax for existing. If you exist, you pay money to the Roman Empire. That's it. Doesn't matter who you are. Doesn't matter anything about what you do. You are alive. We get money for that. All right. So those are the three empire taxes that everyone had to pay. Now, in addition to those, you had local taxes. Local taxes were not displayed anywhere. They were all subjective that anyone local could say Rome is requiring this right now and you had no way of verifying. So you had to pay what they told you you had to pay and these are samples of the taxes that you would have to pay. So this is not all of them. This is merely samples. Here we go. There are import and export taxes. The area we're talking about in the Bible, they're in Capernaum. That is on a major trade route from Egypt to Damascus. So you had import and export. Anything coming into your region, anything going out of your region was taxed. Anywhere from 25 to 12.5%. Now you would go, well, that's a big white. Yeah. So you never knew what they were going to require. Okay, there's more. There's a toll tax. Not a poll tax, a toll tax. If you would like to use our main road, if you would like to use our bridge, if you'd like to get into a marketplace, if you would like to enter our town, if you would like to enter our harbor, all of those are taxed. If you want to use any of our stuff, it's taxed. Then they had vehicle travel tax. If you had a donkey, I will tax your donkey. If you have a cart, I will tax the axles on your cart or your wheels on your cart. Then they had sales tax. Any goods bought or sold in any of the region, including fishing and all that, all that is taxable, but you don't know how much. So the local guys who would do this would make up their own ideas and they'd say, you have to pay this much tax. Well, what if you couldn't pay it? They said, I have an answer for you. I will lend you money at a rate, an interest rate. So you can pay your taxes and owe me and I will even get more money. That's called loan sharking. It's the idea of money lending with exorbitant fees, right? Now, can we all understand why everyone hated them? I mean, it is like a corrupt IRS that makes stuff up every day, but they're people you know. Now that's really disruptive, right? They're just kind of, everyone's doing it different. There's no standard. So they would became very, very hated because of the corruption. But they also were hated because they were traitors. You got to remember, the Jews are hardcore nationalists. They're all about Israel. If you are not Israel, they want you to go away. So this whole idea that Rome was the oppressive government and then your neighbor caves and works for them. Now you're super mad. Because the patriotism alone will destroy any relationships. How dare you work for the bad guys? 
But now there's an additional problem. This is a Jewish region. That means it's religious. In religious areas, we have an added dilemma. In religious areas, like a church or like a country that is largely religious, you have a culture that talks about right and wrong, good and bad, clean, unclean. You talk in very broad terms. If you are in the us versus them and you are the them, we can shun you out of all society. We will kick you out of our synagogue, which is what they did to all tax collectors. You can't go to church. You cannot intermarry with our people. You cannot receive hospitality. We cannot receive hospitality from you. We will shut you down in our religious culture and everyone will agree to it. That was Matthew. So we need to understand the tension that is going on. Jesus is walking along. He's got a couple of his disciples already. I saved this story for here because you need to understand what a big deal it was. The other guys had been called. He has some fishermen along with him and they're walking along and they're talking as rabbis do. And he comes by a tax booth, whether that was for toll or whatever. And you can imagine what all the other guys are thinking as they walk up. They're like, oh, great. It's Matthew right now. They knew him as Levi. Matthew was probably his apostolic name, but Levi was his real name. They're like, great. It's Levi. If fishing is taxed, they know this dude. He lives in their town. They've already been gouged by this guy. They don't like this guy. So they're probably ready to say either something profane or mean or nasty about this guy as they walk up past his area and their rabbi stops and says what? And he said to him, follow me. What? What do you mean? Follow me? No, Lord, we do not want that dude. Okay, I don't, you're the Jewish Messiah. We don't need Roman traitor guy on our team. So you can imagine everybody's agitated. Lord, this is a terrible decision. I can't believe you would even talk to this guy. We don't like this guy. We've known this guy for a long time. He's totally corrupt, blah, blah, blah. Even if he's a good guy, it doesn't even matter. We want nothing to do with this guy. And Jesus said, do you want to be one of my team? And then look at his response and leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Now, let's not mistake that he had never heard of Jesus before and just makes an instantaneous decision. Jesus is from Capernaum. Levi's from Capernaum. He knows miracle guy. He knows his teachings. I wonder what he's been thinking this whole time. You could imagine if you're an outcast from the society, what are you going to think about one of the brand new leaders that's a celebrity? Was he going to hate me? Does he reject me? I, I wonder this sometimes. Some people in the world know about Bridgeway. And let's say that they do something that is shunned by the church. A lot of them kind of go, I wonder what that pastor guy would say to me if he met me. I wonder if he'd be a jerk to me. I wonder if he would be nice to me. The same concepts, but even more so, were happening around Jesus. So all of a sudden, Jesus walks up to this guy and he says, do you want to be my disciple? And for a rabbi to ask that, man, that's an honor. It says he left everything. Did he really leave everything? Well, let's go through it. The guys so far that have been called are fishermen. Guess what they did after Jesus died? They went back to fishing. Why? Because they have family in the business and you always can go back to fishing anytime you want. Guess what you can't go back to? Tax collecting. The minute you bail out, you're done. Not only that, but you're leaving your one crew to go where? No one will ever accept you. They know what you did before. 
Just because you're not a tax collector anymore doesn't mean they're going to open up their arms to you. You are going from nothing to nothing. You're abandoning everything and you cannot go backwards. You've burned the entire bridge. So as far as, yeah, I get this was probably the most wealthy disciple of them all. Matthew probably had more money even than Peter, who was decently wealthy when they began. But he left a lucrative job. He left his entire crew. He left what he does for a living, his career, and could not go back for Jesus in a moment. Why in the world would he do that? Well, I don't know. I'm going to ask you, why did you do that? Did you do that? Because here's what I think happened. I think that every day Matthew had an ache in his heart that made it so even all of his money didn't fix it. I think he had an ache in his heart that even all his friends didn't fix it. I think that he had an ache in his heart that God had placed there that was constantly agitating him. And the minute that the rabbi walked up and he saw the son of God face to face and he looked in his eyes, I would suggest to you that the ache went away. And when that happens, he knows that's more valuable than anything else. You always let go of the lesser to go for the greater. Or do you? There are some of us in this place that Jesus has been trying to get us to let go of the lesser. And you keep hanging on to it. And he goes, let it go. I have something better for you. Let it go. I'm trying to take you somewhere. But God, I'm used to that. That's what I know. That's what I want to do. Let it go. We're going somewhere here. I need you to work with me. I need you to walk with me. I need you to be with me. And a lot of us get freaked out by that. Matthew said yes. And he began to walk with Jesus. Well, take a look at what happens. It says, and Levi made him, meaning made Jesus, a great feast in his house. That's kind of how we know he had a lot of cash and he had a big crew there. So probably had a large house. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, seriously, check this out. (laughs) There was a large company of tax collectors and sinners who came and were reclining at the table with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Who were the sinners? In this group, we know what tax collectors are, but why are they one group? Sinners and tax collectors. Well, here's what's kind of funny the sinners group had good guys and bad guys. The bad guys are anyone that had an overt sin that you could point at and they would be rejected for that. So they would do something that society deemed wrong and they were put in this category. So these are the obvious ones. This is like, okay, you're a robber, you're a thief, you're a, 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 a you know, habitual liar, you're a prostitute, you're a pimp, whatever it is. What, if you did something that someone could point to, even though you were still a sinner in your heart, you could point at theirs, right? They would put them in the sinner camp. But then there was a whole nother side of this group the good guys. These are people that were moral, upright, solid, great people. So why were they called sinners? Because they were not super religious. In Judaism, in a religious environment at the time, the religious leaders were super religious. And so they made a category that called anyone that didn't do what they do. They're called people of the land. They are the others. And they put all of them into the same category. So you had super moral people and super corrupt people lumped together. 
And it was such an odd mix. You were all shunned by society, so you'd kind of hang out together and go, I don't know why we're hanging out. Listen, I'm not super religious. You're a pimp. I guess now we're buddies. I don't know. I guess we're just kind of, that's our team. I don't know why we got this team. This is very weird to me. This is Matthew's crew. This is who he runs with because they've all been shunned. So a lot of these guys and a lot of these people were not bad people. They were just shunned by society. Some of them were. Some of them were flat out corrupt. All right. And it says that right away, the first thing Matthew does is invite all his friends to meet Jesus. Well, that is pretty intriguing. Hey, man, I met the Messiah. You got to check this guy out. Now, Jesus is a celebrity. I mean, he's a miracle guy. So I get the attraction, but that's not why he invited his friends. He invited his friends because... His life was transformed and he wanted their lives to be transformed. Have you done that? Because here's the funny thing. I would guess if I'm part of the corruption crew, I would probably not want to go party with Jesus. That sounds like a drag. I would not want to go there. If there's anything lame, it's having a party with a rabbi. You're like, what are we going to just go? Shalom, shalom all the time. You know, it's like, what are we doing here? Oh, we're going to read the Talmud. Wow. That's exciting. Okay. This is not a party. So you would probably not want to go, but your buddy Matthew's like, seriously, this guy's totally different. You've got to come meet him. At least just hang out with him for a second. What's funny is by the time they get there, you see that they're all reclining at the table. Nobody's bailing out. Nobody wants to go away. Nobody's agitated and super uncomfortable by the Messiah. So how cool is Jesus to hang out with that they're all going, wait, I like this guy. There's something different about him. There's not an immediate judgment and reaction and attacking and all this. There's not a cold sternness. There is a, man, we can hang with this guy all night long. I love this guy. Jesus is fun to party with, right? That was kind of their idea. But then let me give you the other side of this. Some people have used this passage to excuse their sin. Here's what I mean. Uh, I'm mostly talking about teenagers. All right. So, <laughs> uh, it's all right. Those of you in your 20, you're busted too. Almost always, if you're in a religious circle and you have friends that other people don't like, they will say, Hey, you really need to stop hanging out with those people. And you'll always drop this bomb on them. Well, Jesus hung out with sinners and tax collectors. All right. You think that somehow that's going to make them back off. Let me clarify something for you. Jesus did not hang out with this crew of stoners because he liked to get lit every once in a while. Are we all clear on that? All right. He did not hang out with this party crew because there was a rave coming up and he likes that sort of thing. But his religious friends don't. Okay. Jesus was so intensely pure and powerful that he came in and brought change to them, not the reverse. And that's a critical piece to all of this. We keep playing this game where we can live lives of compromise and then go hang out with people and assume that there's not going to be any problem with that. All right. I love it. Listen, if you're hardcore for Christ and you want to spend your time hanging out with and ministering to the worst of the worst, I'm all in. I'll go there with you. I think that's fantastic. Let's go have a Bible study in the hardcore bar. Let's go. I'm ready to go. Right? I mean, we'll do whatever. That's cool. 
However, if you're just using things as an excuse so people will get off your back and you can hang out with whoever you want to hang out with and think that doesn't have an effect on you, you are wrong. It's incredible in my mind what Jesus is doing here. Uh, Let me give you something that kind of blew my mind on this. Tuesday, Pastor Jason Stewart, our discipleship pastor, gave a devotion to our staff. And I don't know where he got it from. It's brilliant. If he came up with it, it's awesome, right? That's fantastic. Here's what he said. He said, Jesus took a social construct and turned it on its head. And here's the powerful construct. For thousands of years, one rule applied in the Jewish world, which was unclean versus clean. You guys remember this? Everything was about holy versus unholy, right versus wrong, good versus bad. But it was a system of, are you ritually or ceremonially clean? Can you go to temple or are you not? Anyone that was sick was unclean. Anyone that had discharge was unclean. Anyone that had disease was unclean. Anyone that touched a dead body was unclean. They had unclean rules about everything. Jesus flipped the entire thing on its head. Here's why. The rule used to be, if you are clean and touch something unclean, you are now unclean. Jesus' purity was so intense that he was clean, he touched the unclean, and they became clean. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's powerful. All right, now let me drop this bomb on you. If the Holy Spirit dwells in you, And Jesus lives in your heart like you say he does. Then do we not now have an intensity and a connection of the God life in us to where the clean in us can touch that which is unclean and make it clean? Shouldn't that be the way it goes? All right, we'll move on. And when the Pharisees and their scribes saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, which is kind of creepy. It's like they're hanging out the window. They're looking in. Hey, what are you guys doing in there? Right? I mean, it just makes the party uncomfortable. (laughs) They grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you and your teacher eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, meaning they were grumbling to the disciples, but Jesus overheard them, he fires back. And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Meaning I'll drop a proverb on you. I'm a doctor, dude. I hang out with sick people. That's what I do. Now, this is what's so powerful about what he said. Is that he said, of course I would hang out with this group. They need me. You keep telling me you don't need me. You're all good. You're righteous. You got everything down. You're a good person. Well, I guess you don't need me as a Messiah, do you? Let me be very clear on this and i've shared this probably every six months in my entire ministry A lot of people in america they think they're going to heaven because they're a good person, right? I mean, we all follow that. All right real quick. Let me clarify for you I appreciate that you're a good person. I appreciate the fact that you're moral. I appreciate that you're nicer than me. You're still going to hell Here's why good people don't go to heaven Forgiven people go to heaven So as far as you being a good person and actually being better than me and nicer than me and sweeter than me and more sacrificial and more charitable, you having all that, you're still going to hell because that doesn't save you. So what the Messiah did is he rolled into town and he said, I'm a doctor. Are you sick? And you're like, no, I'm good. And he's like, all right, goodbye. You missed the Messiah because he only came for the sick. Are you not sick? If you're sick, Why do you think that was his crew? Because they're the only ones willing to admit that they were sick. 
They're the only ones willing to admit they were broken. They're the only ones willing to admit. And the whole society said, man, you're messed up. They're like, I guess I am. They were sick. Uh, Let me bring up another thing. It says this, go and learn what this means, Jesus said. Now that's a rebuke going, guys, you should know this already. And he quotes an Old Testament passage called Hosea 6.6. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. What God was saying was, I desire kessed. I desire covenantal love. I desire others-focused love, promised love. I desire love in an intense way between you and me more than all your religious stuff you do on the outside. What I've always wanted was your heart. What I don't need is you just trying to look fancy. I need you. That's what I really want. And then he says this, for I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. Tim Keller wrote a book called Prodigal God. It really impacted me for one line specifically. Everybody know the prodigal son story? If you're new to this, let me share it with you. The prodigal son story says this, a wealthy man had two sons and they were Jews One of his sons said, I'm out of here. I'm tired of this whole boring family life. I want to take my half of the inheritance, which basically means, dad, I wish you were dead so I could hurry up and get your cash. I want you to give me my money and I'm going to go away. So he gets the money. The dad cashes out. He takes his money. He goes away to another country, spends it on all kinds of sinful living. And then he runs out of cash and he's in trouble. So he decides to, you know, slink home. I hope my dad's not going to beat me up right? He gets home hoping that he can work for his dad. And his dad goes, I've been waiting for you, runs and gives him a big old hug and says, I'm so glad you're home. And he throws a big party for him. Well, the older brother who's been there the whole time hears noise. Hey dad, what's going on? I've been working in the field all day. What's going on? Oh, we're throwing a party for your brother. He's back. What? Wait, what? Loser comes home gets a party. I've been here the whole time. I didn't do anything like that. I didn't say dad, I wish you were dead. I never did anything like that. I didn't go off and screw up my life. I've been the consistent one. I'm the good guy in the family. I never got a party. So you know what? I'm not going in. Let's be very clear on what the prodigal son story is about. It is not about the guy that came back. Do we all, who was he talking to when he told that parable? The Pharisees. He's talking about the brother that stayed home. The prodigal son story is about that guy. And here's the line that Tim Keller said that was so powerful to me. He said, the older son that stayed home had to repent of his good works as much as the sinful younger brother had to repent of his bad works. Because here's the bottom line. The Messiah is here to save sinners. If you think that you're self-righteous enough not to need one, you're not going to get one. Jesus saves sinners. Are you a sinner? Then I guess you need a Messiah. But if you're not and you're a good person and you're doing great, I guess you don't get a Messiah. Moves on. It says this. Uh, Now, the disciples of John and the Pharisees were fasting. Now, this is John the Baptist. He's in prison now. And they came to him, Jesus, saying, why do we, John's disciples, and the disciples of the Pharisees, fast often and offer prayers, but your disciples don't fast? They're eating and drinking. Why are you guys partying while we're being super religious? And Jesus said to them, 
Well, can you make a wedding guest fast and mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Now, the days will come when the bridegroom's taken away from them. Then they'll fast in that day, in those days. Now, this sounds like a convoluted story. It's actually very simple. The Jews fasted for two primary reasons. The first one was to intensify their prayers. They wanted to really seek God, beseech God, petition God. They wanted to get hardcore about it so they would withdraw from food. And you go, well, why does that work? Is it that God's going, man, you need a couple less burgers, then I'll hear you. <laughs> is, it, is that what it is? Is God going, man, if you just lean out, we'll be fine. And then I can hear you. All right. No, fasting is not for God. Fasting is for us because we can't pray well unless we discipline in and focus. And what we are saying is, God, I'm intense into this. I will discipline my body. I will shut off creature comforts. I'm all in. God, this is what is important to me. I will demonstrate a reordering of priorities. I'm all about you. I want to know you. Fasting isn't for God. It's for us. Second reason they would fast is for mourning, sadness, sorrow, and what they would do, you all know what I'm talking about. If you lose someone super close to you, you don't feel like eating. You kind of get sick to your stomach. But then they would carry it forward and they'd use it kind of like a visible prayer. They would say, I'm so hurting that I'm not letting anyone comfort me. I'm not having any food. I don't want anything. I'm going to visibly be miserable to demonstrate to God that God, if you do not help me, if you do not comfort me, no one can help me. I refuse to help myself on this. I need you. So they would put on black clothes called sackcloth. They would put ashes on their heads and they would fast and just sit in the dirt and go, God, I can't handle the pain. That's the other reason they would fast. So these guys come up and they go, hey, why are you guys partying so much? We're all fasting and being religious. And Jesus said, you know how weddings work? In the ancient world, after a couple got married, they didn't go away on a honeymoon. They actually stayed home for a week and were treated like kings and queens. They hung out in their place and had all their friends come visit them and bring them presents all week long and party with them and laugh and joke about their lives. He said, you know that during that time, even the rabbis know that's a time of celebration. That's not a time of fasting. And the rabbis wrote a line that said, wedding guests are exempt from fasting. He was merely citing out and going, you know why my disciples aren't fasting? Because I'm here. I'm right here. We're in joy time. We're in happy time. I'm doing things that are transforming the world. I'm bringing the gospel in. I'm talking about the kingdom pressing in. Uh, people are getting healed. Demons are getting cast out. I'm proclaiming the word of God. I'm showing you what God is like. Is this really a time for being sad and all upset? Listen, there's going to come a time when I'm going to get killed and I'm going to go away. My disciples are going to be crushed. And so you know what? Yeah, they'll fast then. But right now is not the time. The deeper thing in this that I would like you to chew on is what in essence he's saying is that when I am present, things are right and good. Now, when I go away, I understand that hurts. But if I am present with you, there is a certain amount of joy that should well up in your spirit. What's the convicting part about this? I thought you told me Jesus was in your heart all the time. Where's that joy? We move on. He said, he also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment of unshrunk cloth and sews it on an old garment. If he does, he'll tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old 
and the patch tears away from the garment, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. All right. Anybody old enough to remember sewing on patches? Yeah, all right, good. The rest of you are liars. Okay. Okay, here's how it worked, and my mom is here to verify this, all right? So when I was, when I was little, I had tough skins. You guys know what tough skins were? All right, little corduroys and all that stuff. All right, and I had to wear slim, right? They had husky. Everybody remember husky? Yeah, that's brutal if you have to go buy husky stuff. Anyway, all right. Anyway, so I would go out and I would play all over the place and I would get holes in my knees and then mom would get a patch and at that time it was advanced enough to iron on the patch, right? I mean, if you're going old school, you got to sew on the patch. But what would happen is it's very simple. You'd, you'd put on the patch and you'd put on the underneath and you could kind of, it kind of blended. Well, or not. Anyway, <laughs> here's all they're saying. Nowadays, we have fibers and clothing that do not shrink in the wash. All their stuff shrunk in the wash. So they would have pants that were already shrunk. They'd get a hole in it and they'd grab a new piece of cloth, put it on there. Well, what happens the first time you wash it? That one still has to shrink. Well, it's going to pull away from the old jeans or the old pants and it's going to rip the whole thing. You don't do that. You got to wash the new cloth in order to put it on the old cloth. His whole point was it doesn't work together. All right. Then he has another parable. And no one puts new wine or fresh wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled. And the wine is destroyed and the skins will be destroyed. Everything's ruined. But new wine will be put into fresh wineskins and so both are preserved. All right. Everybody know how wine is made? Okay, I understand you're Christians. You do know how wine is made, right? Okay, quit pretending like you don't. You even know the difference between a Chardonnay and a Merlot, so shut up. Okay, here we go. Uh, wine is made from grapes. You grab all the grapes, you crush them down, and then you put something in it that is an enzyme, and the enzyme begins to break down the substance. As it's breaking it down, it releases off gas that creates expansion. So you start the fermentation process in a vat, in a barrel, let that kind of do its little magic mojo, and then when you're towards the end, you scoop some of that out and put it into what they used for bottles, which was goat skins. All right. You use leather. So you pour the wine in because there's still a little bit of fermentation process that needs to happen. And when it breaks down and releases the gas, it has to have some give to expand. So you use new leather that will give. However, if you grab an old wineskin that's already done doing the expanding thing is now dry and brittle and you pour new wine in there and it tries to expand, it will burst. We all got it? So what's his point? Are you done expanding? Is that the deal? You already got this God thing figured out. You already know how things work. You've already figured out your Bible. You got everything nailed down. And so anything new that is presented to you, you automatically resist and it will actually break you. If you are brittle and hardened and refuse to change, you will get snapped by God. He said, it doesn't work, you guys. This whole thing about I'm new every morning and I'm working with you and I'm transforming you and I'm bringing in new ways of doing things and we're overhauling how you do church and we're overhauling how you do this and we're overhauling how you sing worship and we're overhauling. And if you are done, you will break. Because new wine goes into new wineskins. There's a reason why most all revivals launch in the youth. Because everybody else is done growing.
that's a drag. Because God wants to do a new thing. And the older crew, me, us, we're resistant. We don't want to do that new thing. As a matter of fact, Luke closes with this line. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new. He says, the old's good. We've always drank that. That's just kind of how it goes. I mean, I don't, I don't have any desire for anything new. We're fine. We've always done it that way. And that's the way that's good. I mean, God moved that way in the past. I don't see any reason to mix it up. I don't see any reason to argue about it. I don't see any reason to change it. God was powerful there. So why would we do anything new? Oh, I get you don't desire new. But what if you need new? What are you going to do with that? What if the king brings you new? What are you going to do with that? I know that we like the way we've always done it. I know that you had to make some parameters in your mind and some understanding of God and some systematic theology. I understand that you had to come up with some type of construct to deal with religion and life. But what if Jesus wants to mess with it? Are you done growing? Are you done learning? Are you done stretching? Are you done expanding? Because Jesus is not done pouring new wine. And so he will continually pour into you and pour into you and pour into you and go, come on, work with me on this. Here we go. We're going to stretch. We're going to move. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. Are we going to snap? Or are we going to roll with it? Obviously, my point is that I believe that we need to be soft in the hands of God. And I think that sometimes when we're faced with challenge or newness, we need to say, is the heart of God being expressed? Not, is it done the way I've always done it? That's a big difference. When we get scared, we immediately call things either bad, selfish, or demonic. That's how we sure up our walls. We block everything else out. And we say, that's not God. So, for example, if you guys remember the worship wars that we had back in the late 90s, early 2000s, where churches would split over what type of music they're going to play. <laughs> remember? Because that's not God. You sure? What about the way that you do church? What if you change the structure? Well, that's not God. You sure? Is the heart of God being expressed? Because we're not doing anything like the early church did it. So somehow Jesus poured new wine and we're partaking in it. So you're already getting the benefits of new wine over and over and over again. Some of you are big fans of the Reformation. You're all hardcore about Martin Luther and the whole thing about how they went against, oh, the Catholic Church, and it was corrupt. And he was trying to say, we can't renovate this. I'm trying. But God is saying, we need to do new stuff. You're, this, how this church runs is from that. You sure the old was better? I'm not so sure. Okay, so let's just allow it to sit in our hearts and say, Father, am I soft in your hands? I'm not asking anybody to go, I blindly do whatever. It's I'm saying, are you open 
to what God is doing fresh. That's critical.